What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Nurse Ree, and you're tuning in to Forensic Nurse Files. This is an informative but fun true crime podcast that follows the careers of three forensic nurse examiners. We just want to note that this podcast uses foul language, some sarcasm, and contains descriptions of adult themes and violence that some people may find disturbing. So if you need support, please check the show notes or visit our website. Hello, everybody. This is Nurse Ellie. And Nurse Ray. Welcome back to our Forensic Nurse Files podcast. We hope you're all doing well and surviving this summer heat wave if you're living in one of those areas that's affected by these massive heat waves. I know. I feel like it's everywhere right now. Like, this is crazy. I mean, it's like, usually at Peloton at like 8 a.m. I can't, It's in, and it's in my garage I can't even do that because by the time I wake up, it's already 80 degrees and it's like sweltering in the garage. So it's like, forget that. Oh, yeah, girl. I've been doing it the station in the garage, the stationary bike and literally, well, and then I make it worse for myself because I put those, um, the sweet sweat and the stuff <laughs> around my waist. <laughs> oh, yeah. You're getting hit double time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I got to do it. Um <laughs> Well, we again, welcome back to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed our last podcast where we took a little hiatus from our information, our usual information when we talk about our different types of patients and exams, forensic medical exams that we perform on our patients slash victims. And we talked about how we as forensic nurse examiners are able to mentally, emotionally uh, handle working with the types of cases that we see. So if you didn't listen to that, I hope you go back and check that out. And today, we're going to talk about the forensics exams for sexual assault suspects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And our prison cases, too. Because those are suspects and victims. Yeah. Probably things that um, I'm not sure if the listeners, if you think about what a forensic nurse examiner does, I would say probably a lot of you wouldn't be thinking about um, exams on the prisoners, which is something when I first got into um, forensic nursing is something that I wasn't aware that we did, but we do, and we'll get into that on the latter part of the podcast. But I thought we could start with uh, uh, the forensic exams for sexual assault suspects. Yeah, I think suspects was a shocker to me too. Like when I first started, I didn't realize I was going to have to be dealing with the suspects because I think when you hear about forensic nurse examiners or sane nurses, you hear a lot about victims. Um, I never knew that we did exams on suspects. It was a learning curve for me. Just in nursing in general, you encounter all types of patients. Your patient might be a school shooter. You know, they might be a pedophile. They might be a convicted felon. You never know. So you really just have to learn to remove yourself from the surrounding situation and focus on patient care. And the suspects are no different. But yeah, suspects are a thing. Yeah, and we a suspect is a suspect only. When exactly. we perform our exams, they, you know, they obviously they have to be tried and found, convicted in a court of law to be uh, accountable for that action. So it could it could rule them in the evidence that we collect as a suspect or it could rule them out. So they are very important. And uh, in contrast with the medical forensic examination of a sexual assault victim, the forensic exam of a sexual assault suspect, it generally focuses on forensic evidence collection and documentation. So it's not so much for medical purposes, meaning injuries. And uh, what we do identify and document any injuries or anomalies. And 
again, we collect and document biological and trace evidence. We're going to talk to you a lot about that. And mm-hmm. uh, these these exams are very important. I don't know if you we want to talk about the importance of these exams? Yeah, absolutely. So when we evaluate potential sources of evidence, a lot of times we focus on anything that has transferred from the suspect to the victim, right? But it's really important for us to think about when we're doing our suspects to think about what has transferred from the victim to the suspect. So depending on what kind of physical or sexual contact has occurred, the suspect's body or clothing may actually be a better source of potential evidence collection for us than the victim's body. So an example, let's say there's digital penetration of a victim's vagina. In that instance, if we're doing a suspect exam, the suspect's fingers may be the best source of potential evidence collection over the victim's vagina, right? Because you'll, you're more likely to have the victim's bodily fluids on the suspect's fingers than the suspect's DNA off of his fingers in the victim's vagina. Or let's say there's what we call oral copulation or oral cop, meaning oral sex. Let's just say the suspect forced his penis into the victim's mouth. In that instance, again, his penis may be a better potential source of evidence than the actual victim's mouth. And when we get into our episode next week, we'll talk about evidence collection and when is the best time frame to collect that. Because if it's been over 24 hours, evidence in the mouth, just because of the oral mucosa, the saliva, all of that stuff, it degrades incredibly fast. So we only have 24 hours to collect any DNA in the mouth. Absolutely. And again, you wouldn't have, like you said, the DNA sperm or, you know, shedding or anything from the suspect necessarily in a Mm -hmm. case like that. I mean, definitely if there was no penile penetration and there was digital, you wouldn't have that at all. But you have to think about um, how, how DNA is collected. So for instance, digital, a finger going into the vagina or to the rectum, that would have, um, there would be some DNA from the victim, most likely on the fingers, in the fingernails, nail beds. So that's mm-hmm. something that we collect. Mm-hmm. We do uh, swabs of the hands. We collect scrapings from under the fingernails. And we actually, those scrapings are, are packaged in an evidence kit. And we also swab those areas for, uh, for, you know, to collect any DNA or trace evidence. You know, yeah. and we also, like something on a side note, I don't know if we talked about this before, I don't remember. I don't think we have. In our evidence collection, mm-hmm. we always do a buccal swab mm-hmm. mean, for DNA, for reference DNA. So we'll do one that's the inside of the mouth, the cheek, to get DNA from the, the victim and also from any alleged suspect. Yeah, and let's just, say there, let's just say we don't find any evidence that a sexual assault occurred well, that information still goes into CODIS, the DNA da- database. So maybe this time, if it is the suspect is the suspect or they are someone that cre- um, has committed some of these types of crimes, maybe we don't have enough evidence on this patient, but maybe down the line, w- there might be evidence uh, linked to that, that uh, suspect or victim at a later time. And if you ever watch forensic files, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. I would say probably a lot of people that are listening to this podcast probably watched forensics files or have watched it from time to time. Oh yeah, I know I have. And we're going to get more into that on our next episode. We're going to talk to you guys about how we collect evidence, what swabs we collect, how we photograph, how all of that goes down. Basically what goes into our exams and into our forensic kits. Very interesting. Very scientific. Well, you know, something that's interesting that I think is really important. There was a study in 2002 
It was a study conducted by someone named Isaac T. Kane, and it's called the the name of the study is called the use of physical evidence in the investigation and prosecution of sexual sexual assault cases. It's actually a really interesting study. The research for that study was conducted at the San Diego Police Department. That's a fairly large city in the state of California. And what that involved, I'm talk about it because it it it, uh, it speaks to our point. It involved analyzing the findings from 77 sexual assault cases that received laboratory analysis from the forensic biology unit. And those were um, between 1998 and 99. So it was a one-year study. And check out these results from this study. This is one study. So in cases involving an adolescent victim, 44% of suspects' evidence kits that were examined by a criminalist ultimately identified the victim's DNA. So this is an exam of the suspect, 44%. That's like half. That's amazing. Yeah. And in fact, uh, DNA analysis of what they call epithelial cells found on penile swabs of the known suspect were the most common pieces of suspect evidence that was associated with victim identification. So that's one um, interesting fact that came from that, that study. Another one so that was adolescence. So in cases with an adult victim, as many as 30% of the suspect's evidence kits that were examined by a criminalist identified the victim's DNA. So, um, you know, again, so it's pretty um, apparent how important it is to, um, to conduct those suspects' exam. And I want to reiterate, we're talking about the victim's DNA on the suspect. Right. And you so, know what? That's crazy because when we do our victim exams... You don't always, you know, there's not always injury and there's not always evidence of a sexual assault. So if you can do a suspect exam and find the victim's DNA on the suspect, that's that's a hit. And that's amazing. And yeah. I, I, I never knew about this study. So like just hearing and reading this is is amazing. I love that. I love it, too. And, you know, a lot of the time these are the need for these type of exams is overlooked. But this um, this study clearly uh, is evidence that is very important to collect any evidence, trace evidence off of, you know, our suspects, because it can, again, if we don't find anything on the victim and we find the victim's DNA on the suspect, well, there you go. Like you said, it hit. Yeah. So there's also suspect clothing and crime scene evidence that we collect. So a lot of times, you know, centers may fail to collect the suspect's clothing, which is a huge and valuable source of evidence. Um, A lot of times, because if you think about it, a lot of these things start with clothing on and there's tussling and they're struggling back and forth with clothing on. So a lot of times, you know, that can be a huge source of evidence. Yeah, especially, yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, we'll talk about, again, some of the types of things that are found on the clothing, but I just have to tell you this one story. Mm-hmm. There was a, a victim of sexual assault and a suspect where we did the exams on both, you know, the victim and the suspect separately. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> undeniably, the victim was on her, she was menstruating, she had her menstrual period. Mm -hmm. And the suspect's shirt was covered in blood. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's luck. I mean, not luck that the crime occurred, but I mean, lucky that she was on her period, that evidence transferred, and that can help her immensely in her case. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, we take pictures of that as well. But yeah, I mean, you can't get much better than that as far as having some 
collaborative evidence. You know, the study that I just talked about of the 25 adolescent cases, mm-hmm. when the suspect's clothing and other crime scene evidence associated with the suspect were examined by a criminalist, 80% of the items, 80% of the items included the victim's DNA profile and Whoa. 20% included the suspect's DNA profile. So what I'm talking about with those um, as evidence associated with the suspect, condoms, bottles, um, tissues mm-hmm. they might have used, you know, to wipe something, uh, bottles, sometimes mm-hmm. they use it for um, penetration into the, um, into the victim. You know, we had a, a one, mm-hmm. I had a patient one time who was um, sexually assaulted with a wine bottle and the, her body retained the cork of the oh wine bottle. God. So oh that was booked. I know. Right. Actually it happened on a, on school property and oh uh, a, a high school. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Um, we have had victims come in and bring those objects in that are left behind. Um, and those can be a huge source of DNA because say that they they use a fake penis, you're not going to find that evidence. So if the victim's able to get a hold of that item, it is so key. So key. And we talked, I don't know why the discrepancy between adolescents and adults, but we said that 80% um, of, on 80% of the suspects in adolescent cases, um, mm-hmm. there was D- the victim's DNA found. 20% mm-hmm. of the suspect's DNA. So of those remaining um, cases, which were adult cases, 51 Mm-hmm. Uh, 17% of the suspect's clothing and other crime scene evidence associated, again, with the suspect examined by a criminalist included the suspect's DNA and 50% included the victim. So I'm just thinking about the victims, 80% and 50%. That's a lot. Um, That's a lot. So, so clearly important evidence can be obtained from the body and clothing of a suspect in a sexual assault case. Mm-hmm. And this is especially significant because so many people think of sexual assault cases as not having physical evidence. Mm-hmm. They say it's simply a question of he, sh- he said, she said, how are you going to prove it? But mm-hmm. um, this, this um, contradicts that thought process. In many cases, you know, as we see, physical evidence can be obtained if we look in the right place and appreciate that evidence might either support or challenge the theory that the suspect is in fact the perpetrator, meaning yeah. somebody cannot, there are a, alleged sexual assaults just as much, just as, you know, I mean, just as I would don't know as frequently, but there are alleged and there are, you know, actual sexual assaults, you know, and, um, you know, and I'm sure that you have seen, cause I have seen when there's, you know, we always believe our patients, you know, whatever they say, they say, we don't know. So we just let, collect the evidence, you know, do the exam and let it speak for itself. But sometimes it could be a, a, um, a, you know, a, you know, like a situation to get back at somebody or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I've, (laughs) I've seen those situations for sure. So it can rule the suspect out as the perpetrator. You know, I actually, um, have seen cases where I didn't know eventually. And again, it's, we don't get, we're very objective in our collection of our evidence and our exams. So it's not our, it's not us to decide what did or didn't happen. We're not there, but Mm -hmm. I did have a case where I actually have had a couple of these cases. I don't know about you where somebody was in a committed relationship in these cases, a marriage, and they decided to um, step outside of the marriage and have intercourse with another person. And then they alleged that person, um, when, the, when the, the, these happened to be women, when the husband found out, um, she alleged um, that she was sexually assaulted and had nothing to do with it. So mm-hmm. 
you know, again, you know, these things happen, but, it, but, um, and in that case, you might find some DNA and then that might be one, one of those cases where, you know, it has to obviously probably go to a trial if, you know, if, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't know if you want to speak to this, but it's, um, you know, a suspect exam isn't just about identification of DNA, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the importance of the suspect exam is, um, is, is not just for, you know, documenting the victim's DNA for identification purposes, right? So Mm -hmm. depending on where the victim's DNA is found on the body, the suspect's body, it may provide a better idea of the specific acts that were involved in the sexual assault. So if they say there's penile vaginal penetration, then you would probably, you might see something there. If it was digital there, oral cop, you know, somewhere else, if they say, oh, the, the suspect, um, they ejaculated um, on my leg or, you know, or on their shirt or whatever mm-hmm. it was. And that's really helpful, you know, especially with um, some of our younger victims or patients or those who may have been under the influence of drugs or alcohol. We call them, you talked about last week, an LOA or a loss of awareness, because they mm-hmm. may not be able to recall. They may not know like what happened to them? They just knew something happened to them. They woke up naked. This guy was next to them or girl was next mm-hmm. to them or whatever. And they don't know what happened. But if we find, um, if we find, you know, the, the victim's DNA on, on the finger or the suspect's DNA in the vagina, we can say, oh, there was, there's a good chance. That, I mean, there was probably vaginal penetration or digital penetration. So when they can't remember where that evidence is collected can help, um, you know, f- put together the pieces of the puzzle uh, mm-hmm. regarding what actually happened. And so you guys, the suspect exam is important because it can provide documentation of the suspect's clothing, like, you know, their appearance, are they shaven, unshaven, are they circumcised, uncircumcised, do they have certain markings on their body, tattoos, piercings, scars, birthmarks, all those kinds of things. Um, if a victim can identify those on the suspect, then it can be pretty clear that you know they were in the same vicinity in the same room maybe they saw them with their clothes off whatever yeah Um, yeah that's important because like when it's you talked about like uh you know tattoos they can say i i all i could see was that he had um let's just say their masks that um one blue eye and one brown eye or you know they're what you know or they saw i only saw the back of him when he walked away and he had a big or she had a big tattoo of a rattlesnake on their back or whatever, you know, and then you have nothing else other than that or the clothing. Somebody, let's just say it happened in, you know, um, they were seen in a public place. They went to a bar, you know, there's a lot of these roofies and date rape drugs put in drinks these days. We see a lot of that anyway. And Mm -hmm. someone can say, yeah, I saw a guy wearing um, a blue and white striped shirt with a tattoo of, you know, a elephant on their forearm sitting next to this girl at the bar who looked like this. Right. So then we have that clothing, you know, and to kind of put them in a place and to, you know, kind of piece together again, what happened or might've happened. Yeah. Yep. And when you're in the moment, sometimes when these things are happening, it's so hard to remember to focus and to remember what this person looks like or any identifying factors. But when there's things that stand out like that, (laughs) usually it'll stick out in the victim's mind or maybe someone that's a, a witness, maybe it'll stick out in their mind if there's something that's so out of the ordinary that they can identify yeah they might say that oh the they he had or she had 
a very strong body odor. It smelled like they hadn't showered in years. And maybe it's somebody who's currently homeless and they haven't had a shower and you can maybe look in those certain areas to find that person. Another thing is like debris. We take, we collect debris. We'll again, talk about that next week. Um, but we might get, um, you know, some, you know, remnants of bushes or, you know, paint chips, maybe the, the, um, the, the perpetrator is a painter and Mm. had painted earlier in the day and still had paint on them, but it's now um, we're able to get that on the the victim or the suspect. So there's certain things that um, there's so many things that we can collect. And um, yeah, Uh, sand is a big one. I've had sand, um, a victim come in, she had sand in her underwear. And then when they brought the suspect in, he had sand in his shoes. There Um, you go. So yeah, yeah, it's that, that's really important. And again, like, Nurse Ellie said, we're going to talk about it next week, how we collect that stuff. But that's really important. And sometimes things like a pubic hair um, on the suspect or, I mean, it could be on either, but we're talking about suspects Mm -hmm. specifically. Maybe Mm -hmm. um, they are completely shaved and there's a, you know, a blonde or black or red or whatever pubic hair (laughs) that, you know, correlates with the color of the victims on, Mm -hmm. you know, on the patient or even a hair, a head hair. Anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's recommended these exams should, um, they can be conducted anytime, but we really want to conduct them, you know, as quickly as possible after an arrest is made. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Which is why it's so important that our victims come in as soon as possible. And I know that's not always the case and there's different reasons that people don't come in, but the sooner the better. Yeah. And that goes for both ways. That goes for the victim yep. and for the suspect because, you know, evidence, usually we have 120 hours, five days mm-hmm. to collect yep. evidence. And mm-hmm. after that, you know, it's mostly destroyed. So really there's no point. And the longer it's been, the less likely we are to be able to collect evidence for obvious reasons, bathing, showering, you know, mm-hmm. you, you know, going to the restroom, wiping, brushing teeth, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. if someone orally copulated, force you oral copulation and ejaculated in your mouth or, or didn't, and then you brushed your teeth because what happens is the, a lot of the time the victims just want to take a shower. They just want to rinse their mouth. They just want to do that. So, um, you know, just, in, you know, just informing everybody out there, don't do those things. Mm-hmm. you know, even as much as you want to, and we understand how badly you want to remove that from your body and your memory, if you could just hold off till an exam, then that's good, you know? And yeah. And if you do do those things, if you do change your clothing, just if you're coming in for exam, bring them with you. Don't wash them. Don't get rid of them. Bring them with you. If the condom, whatever you can find that was there or present on your body or in the vicinity during the assault, just bring them with you. We've had, um, we've even had tampons. Yeah. Tampons, condoms. I mean, tissues, towel, whatever. Yep. For sure. So that's really important. So, um, so again, we want them to come in as shortly after they're arrested as possible. Um, whether or not the suspect is bathed, we still want them to come in. Um, and, you know, and, or if there's a reason to believe there might still be any evidence or injury to the suspect, maybe they've bathed, but she says, I scratched him across the chest as hard as I could. You know, and maybe we got, we're able to get, a, we don't know if we got a sample, but we would take uh, samples from the fingernails of the victim. But then we want to see, even if it's a week later, if it was um, an injury such as that, we might be able to see, um, you know, evidence of that injury, you know, those scratch marks on, 
on the suspect. So do you want to talk about legal authority for suspect exams? Yeah, we can get into it. So there's three ways that a suspect exam can take place. The suspect may consent to a forensic exam. An exam may be conducted incident to an arrest. So they're a suspect, they're being arrested, and that's when they're brought in. Those are the cases that I see most common where I'm at. Law enforcement will just bring a suspect in for an exam and they'll collaborate with us because where I'm at now, we don't interview the suspect. So you might not have done the victim and you won't know the story if they're just bringing a suspect in. So then they can give you a quick rundown and then you guys collaborate together on what swabs and clothing to collect. And we move from there or a search warrant or a court order can be obtained. I And I, so I have a story with this. My very first case as a forensic nurse, I mean, I went to hospital orientation. I came into the office. We got a prison call. It was for a suspect and they had to get a warrant for us to do it because he was not compliant. So that was my introduction into forensic nursing and it was an extremely crazy. Um, There was five officers in the room. They pepper sprayed him. I was, yeah, I was like, what the hell did I just get myself into? But I'm still here. So, you know, I I don't know. Maybe there is some truth to the like trauma, experience trauma. You kind of love the trauma and you just really want to do your part to help. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you know, um, and then even if like there's no evidence because it's been so long, let's just say it's mm-hmm. even been a year. Um, we can still get that um, that reference DNA swab, the buccal swab. Yeah. Because maybe we yeah. got evidence off a you know, the victim earlier. And now it's come to light that that could be the suspect. But you know, it's funny that you say that that went, you know, I've had some go off, you know, but um, Mm -hmm. the majority of the suspect exams that I've performed, they've been pretty solemn and pretty, um, you know, it it just kind of weird. Oh, yeah, they're just well, the last one I did was like, he was like laughing and smiling. It was kind of awkward. But for the most part, they're very compliant, calm, quiet. Yeah, yeah, very quiet. Not how I would expect it or would have expected it prior to doing this. I I think I I told you before about one. um, Because we have to put there, you know, that we have to take pictures of the external genitalia of the, Mm -hmm. the suspect, meaning that we do like a a head on of the penis and then we put it in you know point outside you know left right, down every right angle. in every mm-hmm. angle and i had the one who was you know, frustrated um you know and he said oh what did you go to school to do this <laughs> as a matter of fact i did so i'm um, thank you for noticing my um expertise in placement <laughs> and photography of your genitalia so, uh, <laughs> so, um, so, you know, when it comes to consent, so, um, we're going to talk about consent because we said that, um, consent, um, incident to arrest or a search warrant. So, um, suspect consent, um, is what we're going to talk about first. So mm-hmm. it is clear that law enforcement officers are allowed, um, by law to use the consent of the suspect as a basic for obtaining for the forensic exam. So that is consent that's given, you know, through, um, law enforcement and they bring them to us. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, some law enforcement agencies do have policies prohibiting this. It just depends on, um, where you are, um, an incident to an arrest. So, um, that was the second way. So, Mm -hmm. uh, um, that suspect examination can be obtained, you know, incident to arrest depending on where you are. So in some jurisdictions, like for instance, California law enforcement agencies are allowed to obtain a complete forensic exam of a suspect incident to arrest. So if that suspect is taken into custody, they don't have a choice. 
Mm-hmm. So that's in California. It's different. I don't know. Every state's different, but I'm just saying in California in particular. So in um, search warrant or court order, you know, to get that de- um, that um, evidence, you know, sometimes you have to go that route. Like you said, you had a patient like that. Um, mm-hmm. They need to, the law enforcement has to obtain a search warrant or court order um, to conduct or have a, a suspect exam um, conducted. So that can, that's a tedious process writing, Mm -hmm. you know, a search warrant or that order. Um, and it takes some time and it has to be, um, you know, taken to DA and everything and, um, you know, granted prior to that, um, you know, obtaining that evidence, you know, sometimes these are in other cases too, things like, uh, you know, DUIs and, you know, other things, but, um, we're talking about sexual assault specifically. And so some components of the suspect exam, and this is going to vary based on your facility, based on your state. Um, it just, so you might have to interview your suspect. I've worked at places that do interview their suspects and places that don't. You're going to take photos, um, which, and you're going to collect evidence, collect your reference DNA sample, which most places is the buccal sample. And you're going to collect your clothing from your suspect. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, that's the basics, you know, when it comes mm-hmm. to a suspect exam. So um, it's less time consuming than a victim um, yeah, exam, but um, I mean, it still takes time, you know, mm-hmm. to do it correctly. Yeah. So PREA, which P-R-E-A, it stands for Prism Rape Elimination Act. And this is something that President Bush signed into law in 2003, and it's for incarcerated people. So basically, this act allows forensic nurse examiners to go into the prison system anytime there's an alleged assault, and we can do an exam on both the suspects and the victim. So what's going to happen is the prison investigator is going to question the individuals. They're going to question both the victim and the suspect separately about the alleged incident. And this is not meant to embarrass anyone or to make them feel uncomfortable. It's just super important to get as much information as possible so that an informed decision can be made about the case in its entirety. That's the investigator in the prison. So they actually have, you know, um, the the, the staff that works at the prison, right? They have people there, but then they use us to collect the evidence, right? Um, You know, so what, you know, we do is, Mm -hmm. well, there's a couple ways. Um, The goal of the PREA is to um, help eradicate prisoner rape in all types of correctional facilities in this country. That's why that um, Prison Rape Elimination Act was um, created, and signs. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is, you know, and I know like you've gone out, I mean, well, I'll talk a little bit about how we do that after I go over the basics or we go over the basics. Let's say that like an example of a Prius So we got somebody who's an inmate or somebody's incarcerated um, and there's any contact of the person without his or her consent. Mm-hmm. It could be, um, you know, you know, it could be penetration. It could be touching, you know, pinching, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. unintentional touch, I mean, intentional touching, not unintentional could be through the clothing. It could be the genitalia, anus, groin, breast, inner thigh, but anywhere on the person. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so they investigate those. Cause of course there's a lot of that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure you kind of have a lot of the listeners have an idea, but there is a lot of that stuff going on inside our, um, our prison systems. I've only had to do two in my whole career. Yeah. Well, it's kind of intimidating. So, um, so we actually get called, um, to yeah. the prisons and all over the place prisons, they mm-hmm. could be, you know, close near far and it's very intimidating mm-hmm. um, because, uh, you know, some of the ones I've conducted are on, um, 
um, first degree murder suspects serving a life sentence who have, you know, had multiple incidences of, you know, weapons while, you know, creating weapons and using them while they're incarcerated. So we're talking some dangerous people, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's a little bit intimidating, um, but it's, it's the same as we would do any other patient um, because they're victims. Um, So they're done in the prisons you know, depending on where you work, um, they're done in the emergency department or sometimes even on a floor if the patient's admitted Mm -hmm. or they can be done at the, uh, the, the actual unit that you work, your clinic, your forensics unit, your, you know, hospital-based program, whatever it is, they can actually Mm -hmm. be done there where the, um, the God, what are they called? Why am I drawing a blank? Oh my God. They work. Oh my, I can't even believe I'm drawing a blank on on this they're they're um anyway the prison guards so (laughs) (laughs) correctional officers there we go yay i'm demented (laughs) i'm I'm having a hard time please please forgive me yeah i'm sorry if i offended anyone i know it it's just like literally when you forget how to spell the word that So um, that's what just happened. So, yeah, so they can be in a variety of settings. So it just depends on where you work. Um, And um, and I have had some who are, you know, you know, very intimidating and some that are very solemn. And Mm -hmm. I've actually said until you handcuff that person to this gurney or Mm -hmm. to this bench, I'm not going to go any further because I could see they're just like ready to go off. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not ready to be you know, in a hostage situation <laughs> right. as a forensic nurse, you know, right. 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 What's your experience with that? I mean, did you, how did you feel when you first, like the first time you went out to a prison, what kind of, um, you mean my very have? first day as a forensic nurse? Um, I was terrified. <laughs> I had never experienced a patient as a forensic nurse. So my very first was, like I said, was a suspect, who was non-compliant? We had to get a warrant. Um, I honestly never felt unsafe. There, there were so many officers around. There was always somebody in between me and the suspect. Yeah, he was handcuffed. Yeah, he was bucking and not wanting to comply. That's why they had to pepper spray him. But I, honest to God, never one time felt unsafe. I feel like both times that I've been in the prison is probably the safest I've felt. Honestly, a lot of the times I felt unsafe in the office being alone with victims that were experiencing mental health issues. Yeah, that's good to know because sometimes we don't feel so safe when we're doing it away from, you know, that type of environment. You know, um, Mm -hmm. I had one that three times I got called back for the same person and they were actually accusing the um, correctional officer of the one that had sexually assaulted him. Um, it turns out, it turns out that, um, this person was one of the ones that was a lifetime sentence on, um, you know, for, um, first degree murder. And, um, this person was so calm and so kind and like, he would never think that that person was that type of person. Well, what happened is when, um, I found out later that this person actually had conjugal visits, um, and, and you know, and they got taken away because he had, um, made, they had found shanks made in, he had made out of things in his cell. And so they had, um, eliminated those conjugal visits or terminated them. And so therefore he was angry. Oh, so so he was recently Mm hmm Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh my God. That's crazy. I had another nurse that said it seemed like the, the, um, the victim just wanted to be touched. <laughs> it was weird. I don't know. I never had that happen, but someone else told me a story about that. I thought, oh, that's a little different, you know? Oh, so, <laughs> but um, anyway, it's, it takes, takes a, takes all kinds. But again, keeping in mind that, um, you know, we're, we're objective. Um, mm-hmm. It's not our job to decide what they did before. It's what happened now. Uh, uh, someone, anyone can be a victim of a crime. And mm-hmm. it's our job to collect the evidence, complete the exam. Therefore, um, you know, the the evidence will speak for itself. It did or didn't happen. Uh, yeah. And I will say it is difficult to do a mobile exam. You just, you're out of your element, you know, you're, you don't have all the tools that you, I mean, we have the mobile kits, right? But it's just, it throws you off. <laughs> yeah. It's really challenging because we have all the, the, there's a mobile, like for anything, there's a mobile kit or bag or whatever that has everything that you would normally use in it. But mind you, we have exam rooms. We have exam rooms that we can have completely set up and we have plenty of space for what we're doing. You know, everything that we use is at our fingertips the way we've, we're accustomed to using it. So it does set you off. It is very, um, I guess like, um, you feel a little discombobulated and you know, when you're oh, there, yeah. like, you got to really think before you set up because you're, you know, you want to make sure that you don't forget anything and, um, right. and make sure that nothing's contaminated your surfaces because, um, you know, we're, again, we're going to talk about our evidence, but we'll tell you something special about our room. Cause people probably wonder how do you, um, not have cross contamination of DNA in these rooms. And we're going to share that with you in our next episode. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to what our listeners think about, um, these type of exams, you know, do they think they should be done? Do they see the, 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 um, do they see the benefit of them? Do, um, what are your thoughts on, on these yeah. type of exams? They're a little bit different. I think they're very surprising for people to learn that we do do these exams. Yeah. And also anybody out there that's thinking of becoming a forensic nurse examiner, like to do a suspect exam or to go in a prison, is that where you draw the line? Yeah, it is for some people, you know, yeah. and I have to say that, you know, with a 24 hour, seven day a week, um, you know, hours of operation mm-hmm. for a, you know, 23 year old, um, just, you know, young female nurse yeah. going out yeah. to a prison in the middle of the nowhere in the middle of the night is extremely yep. intimidating. It is. Yeah, you know, it is. And, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So it's and a lot, and you're going by yourself. It's just you. It's just you. You're going by yourself, and that's something that I do know some people that were not keen on that. And I'll be honest, I didn't. I don't like doing that in the middle of the night either. I never had to in the middle of the night called like that. Thankfully, yeah. but um, there are some places I've been that I would be very, um, very concerned driving. I mean, not just at the prison, but like if your car breaks down and there's nothing, you know, but you know, miles and miles of empty roads between you and the prison. Yeah. And yeah. you can't see and it's dark and it's just, it, and yeah. there's no cell phone reception. It's very intimidating. Right. And on my first call, when we had to go, it was the end of the day. So it wasn't dark yet. It was probably like 5 PM, but it was getting dark and it was snowing. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> come rain, <laughs> come snow, come sleep, come hail, hey. come sun. And you, know, and you guys know prisons are in the middle of nowhere. They're not putting them in the middle of residential areas. No, like they are in the middle not, of nowhere. No, you so. don't have your Starbucks across the street. So no. for sure. So, <laughs> but, um, but I, I do know that correctional facilities, 
that the personnel there are very accommodating and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll uh, meet us and they'll escort us. And they do, um, they do really assist in keeping us safe and helping us yeah. feel, um, feel, you know, pretty good about what we're doing. So, yeah, we um, do. so yeah. All right. Well, thank you everybody for tuning into our forensic nurse files podcast. We really appreciate you. And, um, you can always go to our website at any time at a uh, forensic nurse files pod. What is it? Um, forensic yes. nurse files podcast. Yeah. So well, the web. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Our website. <laughs> Whatever. Check the show notes. It's there. <laughs> it's there. Yeah. All right. Again, thank you. Thanks, you guys. Stay safe. Catch you next week. Adios. <laughs>